Let's open in prayer. Father, I've just admitted to you and to these people here that I need you. I need Christ. I need your blood to cover my sins. We need your blood to cover our sins. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, we have no righteousness. And so thank you, Jesus, this morning for your righteousness. It is perfect. It is active. And you grant it to all who are in you. And this is a gift that is never earned, but is only granted by faith. And so we come to you this morning recognizing that you are all and all. And we ask that you would use this time together for your glory. I thank you that we were able to sing together as a congregation, that we were able to lift our voices in praise and to praise you for these various attributes of yours and to rejoice that Christ is our intercessor, he is our advocate. Thank you for the abiding work of your Holy Spirit in the life of the believer that convicts us and comforts us and leads us into all truth. And to that end, we pray this morning that you would keep me within the, the bounds of Scripture, that I would not say anything that would dishonor you, and that we would listen attentively to your word, and that your word would fall on soft hearts, even now be preparing the, the, the ground of our hearts to receive the word. That this, the, the word, the seed of the word would take root and would germinate and would bear fruit even to a hundredfold, and that you would bring people into the kingdom so that worshipers could be added, so that your name would be glorified, so that the saints would be uplifted, and so that we would go forth in the power of your name, proclaiming the worthy, matchless name of Christ to a lost and dying world. Assist us. We need you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to continue preaching. I preached... Um, out of 1 Samuel chapter 4, about a month or so ago. And I'm going to be preaching from chapter 5 and chapter 6, which is an extended uh, portion of this narrative. But the narrative actually begins in chapter 4, and it goes all the way through the end of chapter 7. We won't be covering chapter 7 this morning. By way of introduction... I want to uh, <clears throat> highlight some <clears throat> of what the Lord taught us from chapter 4. In chapter 4, it began with uh, the, word of Sam, or the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And we noted that after that verse, there's no more reference to Samuel until we get to the end of chapter, or in the middle of chapter 7, at the very beginning of chapter 7, actually. And that's noteworthy because Samuel had already been established as a prophet of the Lord. And the fact that Israel did not inquire of Samuel is very significant. And we soon found, as the narrative unfolds in chapter 4, that Israel was in a desperate state spiritually. They were not seeking God. 
They were not seeking God-appointed spiritual leaders in their lives. They were acting upon their own thoughts. And their thoughts led them in erroneous directions. For instance, they um, went to war and they were defeated by the Philistines. And they wondered what was the cause of that. And they deemed that it was because the Ark of God was not with them. And so therefore they collected the Ark of God and Hophni and Phinehas, who were the priests at that time, whom God had rejected as priests of his because they did not honor the sacrifices of God and they had subverted the, the worship of God for their own pleasure and their own ends and their own means. And so therefore God had rejected their leadership And this just exposes further how far they were leading the people astray. They brought the ark down into this battle situation, thinking that this would be like a rabbit foot that would be their lucky charm that would grant them the ability to overcome the Philistines in battle. Well, that wasn't the case. They went into battle, and the second defeat that Israel experienced was worse than the first. In fact, 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel were killed. Hophni and Phinehas were killed in the battle. When Eli, their father, gets the word, he falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. And at the close of chapter 4, Phinehas's wife, who is in labor as she's giving birth to her son, she gives him the name Ichabod, which means the glory of of God has departed. And we ended that section of the narrative on a down note. The glory of God had departed from Israel. And the ark, the ark of God that Israel had placed their confidence in was captured by the Philistines and taken into Philistine territory. And so this is where we pick up the narrative. And so let's start in verse 1 of chapter 5. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 7, verse 2, and then we'll break down this passage. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, 
for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send um, to to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice, that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there was never Uh, Come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put it on a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bethshemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. 
And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Akron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The title of the message is, God Advances His Kingdom Through His Sovereign Rule for His Glory. And that title is, is really important because it unifies the various pieces that we will be looking at in this message. In fact, in chapter 4, because this is all one narrative unit, God sovereignly is working punishment in the life of Israel. And we'll see that uh, God works around here at the very end, as we already read. God comes back around to readdress the sinful needs of his people, Israel. And the rest of chapter 7 really brings this home. But when we read these Old Testament narratives, we run the danger of reading it and walking away and thinking, well, that was an interesting story, but how does this apply to, to me? How, how does it relate to the day and age in which we live? Well, as we will see, God is advancing his kingdom through his sovereign rule for his glory. This is the meta-narrative of scripture. God is continuing to rule. God is continuing to advance his kingdom. God is saving a people for himself. God is bringing people into his kingdom. God is judging sin and sinners. And he is saving sinners and putting them into his kingdom purposes to be witnesses to his saving grace. And we see all of these um, various aspects here in this narrative. So the first um, paragraph here 
in chapter 5 all the way through um, verse 5, there's uh, several things I want us to take note. First of all, the outcome of the war that occurred in chapter 4 was unexpected. So Israel's perspective, they had a cocky confidence that the ark would deliver them. The Philistines' perspective, they were fearful. They had nightmares that their lot would be similar to Egypt's. It's noteworthy that here you have many years that lapsed with God's working in the life of Israel back in the land of Egypt. And the Philistines were still aware of that and were still um, knew, knew that there was a God who had mightily delivered this people Israel. And they were thinking this way when the ark of God came into the camp, the children of Israel rejoiced, they heard this great noise, and they became fearful. Um, but the reality that ended up coming out of this war was that the Philistines won. That was a very unexpected outcome. And so the result of this would be, um, it would be natural for the Philistines to think that their God, therefore, was more powerful than Israel's God. After all, they just won this battle that they thought they were going to lose. And so they take the ark of God and they place it in their temple where there is this false god, Dagon. And we read, we read here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, what happened here. At the one night, they wake up and Dagon is face down towards the ark. And so what do they have to do? They pick up the ark. It's just laughable, right? You know, they, they manually go over, not, not pick up the ark, they manually go over and pick up Dagon, no idea how big this thing was, and set it back up. Next night, they go to sleep, they wake up early in the morning, what do they find out? Dagon had fallen again on his face towards the ark of God, but it was even worse. The head was severed and the arms were severed. And there's no mention that they put the Dagon back up, which makes me wonder, could they have even fixed it? It's, it's really, God is mocking their false idol here. And so what I want us to see is that God's sovereign rule overthrows false idols. God over throws false idols. You know, God might allow idol worship to persist for a period of time, but it's only a matter of time until God in his glorious holiness will show that there are no rivals to him. In Psalm 29, verses 1 through 2, we read, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Truth comes from God. Other religions are false and contain half-truths and outright lies. And what does God do? He exposes their lies. Only God saves and delivers. And so they're thinking their idol is what saved them and what delivered them. And God, God is revealing to them, no, this is a false God. I'll show you for who he is. He cannot stand before me. God is the only one that satisfies. 
and false religions are only fleeting pleasures at best and cannot truly offer anything to the worshipers. And only God creates from nothing. We see this in Genesis narrative. God speaks the earth into existence and all of um, all of creation into existence. And you have this repeated thing. God says, let there be light, and it was so. And you have that repeated six days. God is creating from nothing. They would say ex nihilo, no matter, and God is making things to come into being. And so here the irony is these idols, they're made by man. They can't even create anything. They can't even keep themselves up and they're bowing. This Dagon false idol bows before the holy supreme God of the universe. Only God orders chaos, whereas false religions bring chaos. Only God grants the ability to do what he requires, whereas false religion enslaves. And so God repeatedly reveals to the world that their idols are not glorious, they're not holy, they're not truthful, they're not powerful. They cannot save nor deliver. They do not satisfy. They're destructive. They do not bring peace, and they cannot bring freedom. And you see this unfolding right here in this narrative unit. God is showing himself to be the supreme God of all. No one rivals the God of gods. No one rivals the King of kings. No one rivals the Lord of lords. Israel's not even in the picture here. No one's defending God. God is advancing his kingdom through his sovereign rule. It's noteworthy that here Israel should have been declaring the Lord to the nations. God himself is declaring who he is and helping the nation, the Philistines, to realize God is God alone. And so he dismantles the false religion and the symbols of it. And now God goes after the false worshipers. And so in the next paragraph, verses 6 all the way through verse 12, you have God's heavy hand against all the inhabitants of of Philistia. And they pass around the ark as if it were a hot potato because anywhere the ark goes, whatever city it goes into, it brings tumors and people die. And people are crying out and they're terrified and they recognize that they don't want to be around this ark of God because God's Heavy hand is upon them. And so not only does God's sovereign rule overthrow false idols, God's sovereign rule judges false worshipers. God's sovereign rule judges false worshipers. And we can note here that his judgment is active. What do we read here? The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors in verse 6. 
Verse 7, his hand was hard against the Philistines and against Dagon, their God. Regarding Gath, in verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both you and old, so that, or young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And then regarding Ekron, the hand of God was heavy there. And then regarding all the five cities of Philistine in, in chapter 6, verse 4, it says that the same plague was on all of uh, the lords of the Philistines, thereby covering all of the expanse of that land. You see, his judgment is active. God is not a silent God and disinterested party. No, he is active in his world. And he is either judging sinners or he is bringing them to the cross to repent and trust in Christ alone. The other thing we note here, his judgment is comprehensive. This judgment that God meets out upon false worshipers is comprehensive and it affects all people. It included Ashdod in its, in its territory. And so when they saw how things were, they sent the ark um, elsewhere. And we read that in Ekron, both young and old men were affected, not just elderly, but young also. And they cried. They too were afraid that they were going to die. In verse 4, it talks about the five lords. God was comprehensively judging this people group for their false idolatrous worship. And then the other thing we notice about God judging false worshipers is that it comprehensively affected the whole person. We read that they were terrified. Um, they were in a very great panic. They cried out. The phrase deathly panic is used. The cry of the city went up to heaven. This was an emotional upheaval that came upon these false worshipers. Secondly, it affected them physically. They experienced pain and death, tumors and death. Everywhere the ark went, tumors ensued and people died. It says, the men who did not die were struck with tumors. Thirdly, this was affecting their spiritual life. Not only affected them emotionally, not only affected them physically, but their spiritual hope was defeated. The people of Ashdod acknowledged that God's hand was heavy against their god, Dagon. So, their God is now being humiliated before their very eyes. Their God, who they thought delivered them from Israel, is the one who just got attacked. And now they, as false worshipers of this false God, are being um, killed before this holy God. Where is their God to save them now? You see, this judgment of God was upon them all. In Deuteronomy 32 Verses 39 through 42, in a small portion of the uh, Song of Moses, we read this. 
See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. You see, God judges false worshipers. Then we move to the next narrative section in chapter 6, all the way through verse 9. And in there, we read that um, his judgment persists. Um, This happened for seven months. Um, His judgment exposes sin. The Philistines acknowledge their guilt. Um, And it also exposed the sin of their inability to glorify God. Did you notice how they wanted to address the guilt of their sin, they consulted with their spiritual leaders and they came up with the idea of making five golden tumors, five golden mice to represent the five different cities. Some suggest that perhaps the mice was maybe the tumors were coming from a bubonic plague or something like that and so maybe they had a a plague of mice um, that was then causing these tumors. I I don't know. But this was their way of uh, trying to address the guilt that they recognized. And it's noteworthy that the plagues that they were concerned would come upon them, the plagues of Egypt, they now were being plagued by God. They too were being judged by God. They too were dying before the Lord. And this was the offering that they thought would appease God. But this shows their sin. Their sin of trying to offer something that God would not be satisfied with. We know from earlier in the Old Testament, God made real clear ways of dealing with sin, and it required the sacrifice of a blood. Uh, a blood sacrifice of a perfect animal with very specific requirements by a priest that had been set apart to do this for the people and to intercede for their sins. And all of these were pointers to the day that would come of the Lord Jesus Christ who would be the Lamb of God, who would be this perfect sacrifice. But you see, the world, when they are confronted with their sin, if they don't know Christ, if they don't know the gospel, They have no way to know how to deal with their sin. And this is their means of going about it. This can't, this, and this will not be acceptable before the Lord. And so his judgment even exposes the sin of trying to cover their guilt by human effort and means. Hebrews 9.22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Adam and Eve tried to cover their, their, their shame with leaves. It didn't work. So God 
killed an animal or animals so that they could be covered with the skin of the animal. You see, the, that animal gave his life as a sacrifice for a covering of their shame because of the guilt of their sin. Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God, but only Abel's was acceptable. And Exodus and Leviticus is chock full of references about offering to the Lord. God strictly defines what is acceptable to him. So just because someone gives an offering to the Lord, even saying this is for the Lord, does not mean that God is going to be accept, or accept that. Herein lies the problem with sinners. They, we, address our sin before a holy God by our own means rather than looking to his means. And this is where the gospel comes and, and applies even to our day and age. I want us also to note that God's sovereign rule directs his creatures. This is fascinating when you see what uh, they did here with these cows. And that was the other scenario that was brought before the people. Take these two milk cows with calves. Separate the calves from their mothers. And these untrained cows put upon them a yoke. Yoke them to a cart. And then separate them from the calves. What do you think would naturally happen? If you've been around animals at all. And you're just thinking about it. You take a cow. You take a calf calf that's sucking from its mother and you separate those two animals the calf is going to make a fuss and the cow is going to want to get to its calf and that's the natural way of things so not only do they separate two cows each cow from its calf put them apart but now they put a yoke on those cows that's not going to work on an untrained cows that takes time it takes Patience. It takes persistence for someone to come alongside and teach cows to be yoked and to pull. Just the, the weight of something on their neck they're not going to enjoy. Let alone now we've got to pull a load. Something resisting um, them. And their, their natural tendency is not to do well in this. And they yoke these, these uh, cows to this yoke. And then they watch what's going to happen. They leave them alone. And what, what ends up happening? The impossible plays out. The men followed this plan. And what did the cows do? They went straight towards Beth Shemesh. This is a miraculous turn of events. The cows load as they went. You bet they would. You bet they would. Look for these little narrative gems as you're reading Scripture. This authenticates the veracity of Scripture. That's a little detail. And we tend to gloss over that. I do. I tend to gloss over little narrative details like that. So, oh, okay. Why did God put that in there? Because that would be what would happen. This is recording exactly what happened. This detail is here because this truly happened. And these are little gems that we can pick up as we're reading the scripture narrative, God's word is true, every part of it. 
These cows didn't swerve from the way. That's miraculous. And the lords of the Philistines followed behind, watching what would happen. And they followed it all the way to Beth Shemesh, where they stopped. And here there was a great stone. This is in the territory of Israel where they were in control. And the golden tumors and the mice were set on this great stone. And there at that stone, it served as a reminder of God's judgment on the Philistines. So God sovereignly rules, or his sovereign rule directs his creatures. He's judging false worshipers. He's exposing false idols, their impotence, their inability to save. He's directing his creatures to communicate um, truth. And then we come to this next narrative unit where God, um, God's sovereign rule directs his people to repent. So now we come back into the, the or Israel comes back into the narrative picture. And that's in chapter, um, um, well, it, it's there at the end of uh, verse 15, but then it also goes into um, verse 17. So the ark returns to Israel with no help from his people. Think about that. The ark had been captured. Went into the land of Philistia. The ark should have been in Israel. The ark should have been in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. Here it was in foreign territory, an enemy of God. Israel had, was, was uh, spiritually derelict. And here God is bringing his ark back into the land of Israel. This is mercy. This is mercy upon mercy, grace Upon grace. Israel didn't deserve this. What, what is God doing here? Um, he's showing his favor towards them, not because they had earned it, not because they had deserved it, but because God is merciful to his people and he is being faithful to his covenant. And so he returns the ark to his people. And what did the, the, the Levites do? They take down the ark of God, they split the wood of the cart. And offer the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. God is calling his people to repent. And so where God judges false worshipers, God is in the process of what? Restoring his people. Why? Why is God doing this? Well, for one, God is a God of grace, God of mercy, God of love, and a God of compassion. He's a God of faithfulness. And God does not tolerate sin. God does not tolerate sin in false worshipers. God does not tolerate sin in his people. And either God judges the sin of sinners and thereby judging the sinners themselves, or God rescues sinners so that they repent and turn from their sins and look to the means that God establishes whereby they can be made right before a holy God. 
This is, the, this is how God, the Scripture continues to unfold itself. These little narrative units in Scripture where God is judging sinners and God is saving people. And you're either being judged by God or you're being saved by God. Either you're looking to God for salvation or you're turning from Him. Which is it for you this morning? And the real solution that really comes to fruition plays out in the meat of chapter 7, which we won't be getting into today. But then you have another event here in this narrative unit where <clears throat> there are some of these men of Beth Shemesh, they looked upon the ark of the Lord. And because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 of them, killed them, and the people mourned with a, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And you have this question. The men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom? Shall he go up to away from us? God killed 70 men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. The men of Beth Shemesh mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And so therefore they wondered, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Great question. Great question. Who can stand before this holy God. By asking, to whom shall he go up away from us, it seems that they are wondering who is able to care for this ark of the Lord. And so what we're, what we're seeing here happen is finally Israel is beginning to cautiously consider how to handle the ark of the Lord. They should have known it's not because God didn't tell them how to handle the ark of God. They should have known. But in this historical moment of Israel, they had either forgotten, they didn't know because of ignorance, whatever it was, there was a spiritual decline that had to come upon them, and God's getting their attention, and they're starting to cautiously consider how to handle the ark of the Lord. God had given very specific instructions on how to treat his ark. The fact that this wasn't in the Holy of Holies is a problem to begin with. But we won't get into all of the details of how they should have dealt with the ark. And so they consecrated Eleazar, and by consecrating him, they set him apart. And then the narrative ends with the ark remaining at Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years. I don't know how many times I had read the book of 1 Samuel. And when I was reading this in my own devotions, I don't know, a few months ago, that that 
just like, whoa, 20 years. God leaves him there, lamenting 20 years. Now, it resolves itself in chapter 7, but God leaves them there for an extended period of lament. <clears throat> Book of 1 Samuel is also, um, it's at the, uh, follows from the book of Judges. Samuel is the last judge. And we know how the, the cyclical aspect of the judges go. Israel wanders. God sends them off to be judged by their enemies. And they cry out to the Lord for salvation. They ask for help and deliverance, and God rescues them. Here, they're left in this period of lament for 20 years. So the title of this message, God advances his kingdom through his sovereign rule for his glory. I've already talked a little bit about that. But all of these various pieces that God is working here, clearly God is the mover. He is the one who is sovereignly orchestrating all the events in, in this narrative unit. And God is exposing false idols for what they are, false. He's exposing false worshipers. He is exposing the sinfulness of his people to bring them back into fellowship with him. Why is it important for Israel to be in fellowship with him? Because God needed to preserve a remnant so that through the people of Israel, God could bring the Savior so that the Savior could go to a cross and, well, actually, before he went to the cross, live a perfect life and fulfill all the righteous demands of God so that in our place, he could take our sin upon himself and die in the place of sinners so that God's wrath could be satisfied because God cannot accept sinners in their sin. Something has to be dealt with. Their sin has to be dealt with, and it can only be dealt with through the righteousness and perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is preserving his people so that through his people he could bring a Savior into the world so that the Savior, Jesus Christ, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the what? Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why does John say Lamb of God? Because John knows that we are sinners and that our sinners need to be covered with a sacrifice and only Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. And all that's occurring in the Old Testament with the sacrifices that God required at that time were all foreshadows and pointers to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so this message for us today is, are you in Christ or are you not? Are you outside of Christ? Is the wrath of God upon you because you are living in your sin and you have not trusted in Christ alone? And so the message for you today would be repent, turn to Christ, run to him. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. You have no guarantee of your next heartbeat. 
are you in Christ or outside of Christ? And either you will someday be exposed for your idolatry and false worship and trust in gods that are not God, or you will be shown to be in Christ and you will stand before the Lord complete because your righteousness is a foreign righteousness. Because your righteousness is imputed to you by Christ through faith in Him alone. So where are you today? For the Christian, there's another application here. No matter how godless the world is or becomes, never forget that there's a day of reckoning. Land of Philistine or Philistia, they experienced a day of reckoning. There is a day coming where God, where God will clearly demonstrate to all that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so as we think of this day of reckoning, I want us first of all to think that we must trust the Lord to execute vengeance and to expose the emptiness of idols. If we continue to read in Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6, we read, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so we as his people boldly declare to a lost world, look to Christ. Even when they rage against us. Even when they plot against us. Because they're plotting against the king of kings. Even when the people want to throw apart and cast away God's rule and God's authority. We do what? We herald the king. And we trust the Lord for him to accomplish his purposes in the world. I want us also to consider to pray for our enemies and to do good to those that persecute us. Pray for their salvation. Pray for truth and righteousness to prevail. Pray for God to prevail, either in the saving of souls or the judging of sinners. Point the lost to Jesus and the gospel. Just like the Philistines, the world cannot cover their guilt and so, as we think of the guilty world, they have a need to understand that they are just that, guilty before God. And then secondly, they need to clearly understand the only way to properly address their guilt is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. 
And we read in Romans 10, 14 through 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Sinners that are guilty before God need to hear a clear declaration that it is in Christ alone. They need to hear what the gospel is. They need to understand that it is in Christ alone. And so we must be clear. We must communicate to them that either you're looking to Christ or everything else is futile and you are still in your sins. I want us also to consider that when the lost perish in their sin... Fear the God of heaven. This is the rightful lot for all humanity. That is to perish in our sin. None of us deserves God's grace. That anyone is saved. This is a tremendous mercy and grace from God. And so when someone who is lost and perishes in their sin. If you're lost, be warned. Repent. If you're saved. Don't forget that the psalmist teaches us that the forgiveness of God causes you to properly fear him. The psalmist says, there is forgiveness with God that you may be feared. We don't deserve God's salvation no more than a lost person who goes out into eternity apart from Christ deserves God's salvation. No one deserves it. That God has grace and mercy and forgiveness and pardon for anyone should cause us to fear him, to bow before him, to revere him, to love him, to worship him. And so we read, continuing in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the exalted Christ. I also want us to consider and rejoice and take comfort that God directs even his creatures to accomplish his purposes. Nothing is outside of God's sovereign rule. He ordains everything, even his creatures, even the cows, God directed. This should comfort our souls. Look into his creation and worship the God of heaven that made it all. If you're a Christian, rejoice that God has worked his mercy and grace into your soul. Rejoice in the perfect atonement offered to you in Christ. And finally, revere the Lord. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12 closes this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.
If we were to go back a couple chapters in 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, end of that verse, God's confronting Eli for his negligence with his own children, his own sons. He did not properly deal with them. And he's rebuking Eli for his own excesses. God says this, Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. What do we see here? God advances his kingdom through his sovereign rule for his glory. 